Welcome to the Cultured Podcast. I'm Melissa Jezier, your host. On this podcast, I talk to top culture makers in the world today to unpack the visible and not so visible forces that make up this often overlooked superpower. Season two of Cultured is focused on change makers from the restaurant industry. With me today is Charlie Foster, executive chef and owner at three restaurants in the greater Boston area, Woods Hill Pier 4 and Adelita. Welcome, Charlie, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So you and your partner, Kristen Candy, have three restaurants, Hill, Pier 4, and Adelita. Each is unique in its own right. How would you describe the culture at each restaurant? Are they similar? Are they vastly different or something in between? Uh, well, I would say there's there's obviously differences based on the personnel between the three restaurants, but the there's a couple shared uh, ideals that uh, I think attract all of the employees that we have that bind the cultures together, which obviously is really important as a growing organization to have some continuity between the businesses. That's expressed by uh, our low staff turnover. We've had employees that have worked for the company since day one that are still there, which is really uncommon in the restaurant world. Uh, it's a very demanding profession, especially when you're in a more fine dining atmosphere. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of stress. Uh, and it can be, as we're seeing around the country, around the world, uh, the restaurant industry is one that needs some work on the way that it treats its staff and the way that people in positions of power behave. And so, you know, the fact that we have such a low turnover, I think, is a good, is, is indicative of the, of the fact that people uh, are feeling positively about their workplace. So we have that at all three of the restaurants. And I think another binding factor is people take pride in uh, what they're serving at our restaurants. You know, our restaurant group was founded on, you know, by Kristen on a very much an ideal, an idealism. It was to make an impact in the community, to support local economies through purchasing power, and to serve people healthy food and educate them on why that food is healthy. That is something that's very central to the people that have stayed uh, with us for any length of time. The pride stems from the fact that what we're trying to do is is, is make an impact, make a difference. We're not just trying to get in there and make some money, get out, or just make a paycheck, or you know, or, or even just trying to be chefs and find an atmosphere try to do is just, just be the best absolute, you know, po- the best possible restaurant and uh, serve the most innovative or esoteric food. Uh, obviously, I have ambitions for that. I, you know, of course, it's about utilizing the products coming from the farm and sitting down with farmers in the winter and talking about what crop, crops they're going to plant and then how am I going to use them and then guaranteeing that I'm going to purchase those those crops. and, and listening to what they need as far as how we order from them and not just being a dictator and saying, you know, bring me this now and otherwise I'll go to somebody else. It's it's about having a very very much a two-way relationship uh, with our purveyors, with our staff, the ownership, with the farm. It's all all give and take. And I'd say that the pride that people take in having more depth and more of a story to tell about why the restaurants exist and why the food and beverage is being served, I think really attracts people and makes them want to stay. So you talked about these ideals that your restaurant holds and the fact that you think these ideals contribute to low turnover. How do those ideals factor into recruiting when you're looking for new hires? Are there specific questions you ask to get to where people's heads are around your ideals or whether or not they'd be a good fit for working in your environment? Yes, I try and we try when we place ads to talk a lot about the merits of the restaurant and why it exists in the first place and that there is, uh, it's not just, hey, you know, X restaurant looking for this will pay this much. We try very hard to express to the staff why we exist. That is a draw for some employees, but I have to be honest, uh, recruiting staff in Concord, Massachusetts is 
the most challenging part of the entire business by far, no question, nothing else even comes close to just trying to have staff in the restaurant. It has been so unbelievably hard to keep the restaurant full and to attract people that actually want to have the have the desire and the potential to learn and be consistent and and be a part of you know where we want it to be because obviously a restaurant's continually evolving uh, and a restaurant's dependent on its all of its parts and that's constantly changing and so low turnover is good um, but having the right people in the right place is everything as in any business and uh, that's been really really hard to achieve so yes we try to use everything we can to say hey we're different we're better be a part of something bigger than yourself uh, and come work with this restaurant because of all the things that we're trying to do for regenerative farming and soil health and um, mm-hmm. and for having an impact and supporting local farmers and I mean that all that really is near and dear to our heart it's not just a gimmick but it hasn't made recruiting <laughs> easy. I believe that you know a lot of organizations right now a lot of businesses right now talk a lot about purpose-driven culture and it sounds like essentially that's what you all have been working to achieve is purpose-driven culture. Um, how has that changed and shifted over the six years you all have been in business or has it? Well you know, it, it definitely has. I mean, you go from 30 employees in the open for all to before COVID, we had something like 135 employees in three restaurants. I mean, that's just a very different scale of operation. So naturally, it's gonna there's gonna be an evolution there. How has your culture evolved, or, or has it evolved over the six years? So one thing I mentioned earlier was that I was 29 when I took the job, and now I'm 35. So young, but a lot has changed in those six years. And so I'd say opening the the initial restaurant and only having, you know, we were open for six days a week. I was there for every minute of every day, first person in, last person out. I saw everything that took place in that restaurant. I touched every plate of food. I did a lot of the prep myself. And that was indicative of a different level of accountability for the other people, like my ability to share and hold people accountable and, you know, demand certain performance from people was very different then because all I was concerned about in the beginning was, you know, how do I use these farm products and how do I serve the absolute most badass food I can and make a name, right? I mean, that's what, that's what I was trying to do. I wanted to be a part of this organization because it had a purpose to it and I wanted to show that I could do it um, and do it in the highest possible level. Uh, and pull that off in West Concord, Massachusetts, uh, which is an additional challenge unto itself. So that, over time, changed very much because you start to see, hey, you know, some of the stuff that we're doing here is financially irresponsible or, or even reckless. Like there's there's some things that we need to really change here in order to become a sustainable operation, not just in environmental sustainability, but in financial stability. The balance between those two things, I think, has been such a huge uh, opportunity for learning and growth for me and for the other people that have partaken in this experiment because people in the restaurant a lot, when you try to do everything right, when you try to teach your staff right or treat your staff well through compensation and, and respect and paid time off, and then you try to treat the animals well, when you try to treat the local farmers well, and you try to keep treat the guests well, everything, right? Where's the, where's the money? Where's the profitability? But if you don't have a viable business model, what point are you proving, right? How are you making a statement that, hey, you can run a business in this way, you're not pretty, yeah, really, can you? Because you just lost, you just lost money. There's no, there's no finance. I'm looking at your P&L and yeah, right. I'm not going to run a business like that. And so that's been our constant challenge is we're evolving to, to balance ourselves. And it's a very, very difficult, and I'd say the evolution has been from trying to find that, identify the balance between 
idealism and reality and put ourselves in a position where we can actually uh, sustain ourselves, play the long game. How much do you bring your staff into that balance that needs to be struck? In other words, are you constantly educating your staff on what it what it's like to run a business and how you have to balance that with the employee experience and culture? Or um, so I'm curious how much you bring your employees into that problem solving mode or to that discussion. Yeah, well, a lot. I mean, we, we especially with management, we've always been really transparent with the financial health or lack thereof uh, of the different restaurants at different times in their life and at different times in the restaurant's life. And, and that is a good tool for people that, for some, and for others, it's frustrating and a reason why they don't want to be there because it's, it's, been, a, it's been a very difficult road uh, trying to open a farm, support the farm, open a restaurant, um, modify the business parameters of that restaurant, you know, uh, re- remove, you know, the labor's too high in the kitchen, so you cut your pastry program, you, you know, we, we shifted our raw bar, we played with business hours of operation, price point, everything, right? Uh, how we were breaking down animals, which way they were being fabricated by the slaughterhouse, and then coming to us. I mean, there's so many different variables, especially when you're responsible for essentially inventorying and wholesaling your own farm-raised products back to yourself. Well, let's talk about the farm here for for a second. Um, How much does the staff at the farm uh, interact with the staff uh, at the restaurant, and are there cross-pollination of ideas? So every year, except for this year, because of uh, uh, coronavirus, um, we would have a a massive uh, staff outing to the farm where we go up and visit the farm for three days and kind of just party uh, because there's so much stress in our in a restaurant environment, being able to take a couple of days off and just hang out with the team and not be responsible. So that, that being on stage for that service, you know, all the stress and the hard work that goes into that. Uh, and that was a great opportunity for team building, but, you know, for the restaurant um, and for the restaurants when it was with Phil and Adelita both going, we have Natalita. Uh, we haven't had the chance to do it with Pier 4 because it opened up in November and then, you know, all this stuff happened. But that was awesome because it legitimized what we were telling people when they came when they went and they saw the farm and they met the farmers and they saw the animals and understood a little more about the operation and how how much work goes into it and how hard it is to constantly rotate you know rotationally graze a hundred cows at once and you know how you have to start planning two years ahead of time if you want to change your parts on beef and uh you know a year ahead of time for, for pork because of there's just so much logistics that go into it and I think it helped people understand you know, why what we're doing is special and unique and, and why we're fighting uh, as hard as we are. And if we're being demanding, we're holding people accountable maybe more than they would be at other jobs. There's, there's a reason for it. I could definitely see that. Probably help bring the, bring the vision to life. On your three-day retreat, is it all fun or is there any business component too? Yes, mostly just fun. Oh, that's good. Well, I'm <laughs> sure that helps else. with culture building as well. <laughs> Restaurants historically have been known as difficult environment for employees. We talked about that a little bit a while ago. High stress, long hours, physically demanding, uh, burnout. Tell us about your vision for the employee's work environment. I'd say that that's a lesson that I'm still learning and one that I've progressed a lot on through the growth, through being a part of the growth of the restaurant from one restaurant to three. In the beginning, I definitely put everything on my own shoulders. I wanted to touch, like I said, every plate of food. I wanted to do all the prep myself. I I would get up in the hoods and clean them. I would get down on my belly and hose the floor and clean out of the floor drain. So like that was my thing. I did it. I did it. You know, no matter what, I would just do it. And uh, that view, that first one in, last one out, self-sacrifice, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm going to be home late and not see my family this week and work the six days, not ask other people to do it. That 
setting of an example in in hindsight wasn't the best way to do it. I I, I have to say I've always, I still believe in that. I still pride myself on working hard and and still covering stations and being able to do what I'm asking the people to do better than they can at least or at least as well as they can. It's very important to me to have that energy and be on my feet. And I never I, I actually in designing I've, I've had a hand in designing the restaurants and. I, we, when we took over Adelita, I ripped the office out and I refused to put an office in Pier 4 because I, I just don't want them. I don't want them there. I don't want employees, I don't want managers sitting in an office separating themselves from the rest of the staff. You need to code invoices or get some work done, set up a laptop, uh, 2020, you know, set up a laptop, stand there, be with your staff and get your work. They're doing their work, you know, and, and so I still believe in that very strongly. I don't think it's wrong, but the ability to hold people accountable by demanding as much as you need to from them and identifying like what areas of responsibility are and clearly defining those things and then communicating about what's being done and what's not is so important to loyalty to staff retention to morale uh, because people you know if you if you just do everything naturally the the people around you will allow you to do so. And that's not mm -hmm. necessarily as educational as you would think it would be as a young chef trying to set the example. I'm sure that applies to other industries. So now naturally having multiple restaurants, having to rely on people and not being there for service and not being able to see everything and taste everything and touch everything, you know, you have to just have really good communication and therefore trust. And that's been sort of how I've been trying to phase uh, my management style and the, and the culture of the restaurants into one where we just are very, very good or at least getting better every time at uh, constant communication and clear delineation of responsibilities and accountability. Did you have an aha moment where you realized that you needed to do this and not just do everything yourself? I'm curious how you how you came, how that evolution happened. Well, so I have, I've been married for, I recently celebrated my 10-year wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, my, my daughter's in sixth grade. She just turned 11. So, you know, as a, as a young chef, I came, I came from the old school environment. Uh, I worked for nothing and I pulled 80, 90, 100 hour weeks uh, for years, made no money for it, but was very much an apprenticeship. And that is just not how the industry is at all anymore. Like not whatsoever. I did shift pay where you'd make a hundred dollars a day and work 16 hours. I did, uh, you know, you just don't get any OT and you're working a billion hours and like, I, that, but I, you know, that's that chef screaming at you. And well, that's where I, that's where I came from. And, and I'm glad that I did because I know what that's like. And I also learned a lot from it and the, the craft depth of my knowledge about how to operate in a kitchen. So let's talk a little bit about the COVID pandemic. You know, you just opened Woods Hill Pier 4 and then the pandemic hit. Uh, so I can't imagine, right, a worse time given the capital intensive it must be to open a restaurant. And now I hear you are back open uh, for dinner and takeout. So tell us a little bit about with so many restaurants going out of business with this pandemic, how did you get to be so resilient? For one, we're used to playing the long game in this business. I mean, we opened up Woods Hill six years ago, and, and um, it was all about, you know, we opened up Woods Hill, we had like 40,000 pounds of meat from the farm that we had to start going through. And then so we opened Adelita to help us with that two years later, and then we opened up Woods Hill here four, and it's all been about how do we continue this growth slowly. I mean, we keep opening restaurants, but we try to be realistic about what our goals are for each restaurant and always trying to stay tr true to our vision. And so because of that, I think we're used to pivoting. We're used to looking at what our operation and changing the way that we do things and trying to be creative. And we're also 
solving a lot of non-traditional problems in the restaurant. Uh, like I mentioned before, the logistics of getting the meat from the farm, the slaughterhouse, and uh, how do you devise a menu where every item between all the restaurants is about, well, we have these things, you know, we have pork jowls from the farm, we have a thousand pounds of them, what are we going to do with them? Well, we're going to start dry aging and we're going to make guanciale. So that sort of, that, that, that which intrigued me so much about this job, which was, you know, I'm going to have to do more and be more involved than I would probably anywhere else, um, I think has sort of set us up to look at things and say, okay, well, we've, we can figure this out. We solved a lot of other really, really weird, difficult problems. Uh, here's another one. What are we going to do? How are we going to be creative about this? How are we going to shift our operation? How are we going to pivot? How are we going to be flexible? And I just say that we're, we're kind of used to that. We're, we're used to that. No one has been through. Everyone keeps saying it's unprecedented, and it is. But uh, I'd say that our operation in itself is kind of unprecedented in all the all the crazy stuff we've been through to try to get where we are. So you talked earlier about being in Concord, Massachusetts, being one of the hardest parts in terms of hiring the right people, finding the right people for your restaurant. Um, how have you, when you find people who aren't the right cultural fit, um, how do you figure that out and what do you what do you do about it? Well, another lesson that's been a difficult one to learn is when to, even when you're facing severe staff shortages, when to say, you know what, it's better to just not have this person here than to say, I really need the hands because I have to open. I, I you know, I literally can't run the restaurant without this person and finding that balance. It's a, it's a really hard one to do. So I'd say I, I was burned uh, a couple of times in the beginning trying to say, hey, it's better for me to not say anything. It's better for me to just let this one go, let this poor behavior go, let this, uh, uh, this person that obviously I'd rather not work here, but I need someone to work that station today. And now I'm, I'm much more willing to say, you know what, I'm just going to take a couple things off the menu until I can find somebody else that can do it. And I'm going to maintain the integrity of my program, but if I don't run a special today, if I can't do these things that I want to do, if I need to reconcept the menu a little bit, I'm going to do that as opposed to dealing with somebody that, that we all know shouldn't be there. And I think that's, that's the right way to go. But it's always difficult, right? It's always a difficult balance. I mean, you know, the, always the show a must go balance. On. Every day, the show must go on because you need that revenue coming in. The, the restaurant industry is very much a cash flow industry and having to limit yourself and how much revenue you can have coming in on key days uh, because you had to let somebody go because they were, you know, they shouldn't have been there is a really tough decision to make. So I heard about your idea of offering heated igloos uh, for social distance outdoor dining. I love that idea. So I'm curious, how did you come up with that uh, concept and how complicated is it for setup, breakdown, cleaning, serving, et cetera? Well, I'm going to give credit to Kristen for the igloos because I was actually pushing really hard for a tent uh, out front in the beginning, right? Because I was going to say, okay, I do a lot of the, the budgeting models and like trying to say, okay, if we have this many people coming through at this check average and this is the table turn time, this is how we're going to do it. So I was investigating into this huge tent, talking to the landlord, trying to say, hey, what are you okay with, you know, working that out. And then I'm, as you're probably aware, the tent business is doing really well for itself right now. And uh, we were imagine. a little late to the game. In, in getting that done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, supply and demand is capitalism, the magic of it at work. And when I got the quote for what it was going to cost to actually put that tent out there, I mean, there was absolutely no way I was going to justify the cost of that. It was astronomical uh, with heat and everything we would need to add the number of services that we would need to make. It was just, it was ridiculous. And Kristen had had this idea of, uh, well, I, you know, we should do these individual little dining pods. And I said, oh, it's not going to add enough covers. It's not going to, like, the math isn't going to work. And then I saw the cost of the tent, and I said, all right, let's, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, I hope to someday be able to partake in your igloo dining. My sister lives in Lexington, so I'm hoping at some point uh, when this pandemic hopefully slows down a little bit, I'll be able to make a trip up to visit and come see you guys as well. So it sounds fantastic. So just two final questions um, that we ask all our guests. What is the one word that comes to mind when you think of culture? Consistency, I would say would be the first thing that I would think of. Um, consistency in delivery, in execution, in communication, um, without clear, consistent leadership, and, and without lines of communication that are also consistent, you can't, you can't have a culture because different people think it's different things. You know, with your low turnover that you said, in terms of having so many employees be with you for six years, I'm guessing they might agree with that. Last question. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Okay, I got a really esoteric one for you. If I could have a superpower, it would be the ability to identify alien life at any distance. And I'm going to explain why. Okay, I can't wait to hear more. I was trying to think what's the, what's the one thing that, that would make the biggest difference in the way that humanity is currently acting in that it's compartmentalized and we're all with our horse blinders on, looking through our little trapped in our little bubbles, looking through our pinholes without any concept of perspective or unity or like, I mean, it's, it's pretty bad. And I, I do, part of the reason I'm part of this project is I'm, I'm very firmly in the camp that uh, we are on a path of destruction here as a species. And uh, we're at a really pivotal moment in our human experience to turn things around and try to fix what we have done and are doing very, very poorly. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are looking in and not looking out. And I think if, you know, maybe I just watched too much Star Trek as a kid, but um, definitely, definitely I watched too much Star Trek as a kid. But the, uh, the, the fact that, you know, if we were able to identify the fact that there, were, there was life out there, I think it would fundamentally change our focus away from really stupid, petty problems that we have uh, that are historically based on, you know, intercultural conflicts and stuff that just doesn't matter and make us actually focus on the fact that we need to uh, expand outwards and you know take care of our planet and survive um, and that that perspective that shift I think would make a huge impact on on humanity and on the planet. Charlie thank you so much for joining I think it sounds like you very much are doing your part to make an impact in terms of having a better earth so thank you for that and I can't wait to get to opportunity to try your delicious food at some point. It was a pleasure being here and uh, I hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening to our Cultured Podcast. If you like the show and want to learn more, check out our Cultured website, culturedcast.com. And please follow us on iTunes. If you'd like to know more about our research, visit eaglehillconsulting.com slash culture.